guest today is a furniture maker, author, teacher, and podcaster. He has spent decades working with various types of wood, crafting beautiful and elegant pieces, and now teaches online courses to those seeking to learn his skills. He is also the author of numerous articles, two books on woodworking, and producing his second podcast called Creativity, Hustlers, Fakers, and Thieves. I had a wonderful time talking with this creative guy, my friend, Gary Rogowski. You want to be a little bit closer, and this will move so you can do whatever yeah. you want with it. You okay. just want to be within like six inches or so. Mm -hmm. It just kind of helps so you don't walk on each other. You can just kind of hear everything uh, in case I trail off on something. <laughs> how you know, I, I, I have to ask, how much editing do you do on this stuff? The goal is zero. Wow. Wow. It's more, <laughs> it's more real. Yeah. If there are stutters and mess ups and I mean, I say some dumb stuff sometimes. Well, yeah, but. <sighs> so I think, I think uh, for people who watch it, I think they appreciate it more that they know. I mean, sometimes I have to cut some things. Mm -hmm. Um. There are, there have been some episodes where people uh, decided later on that they didn't want to have said something. And then there's even ones that I've done where I was asked to just not put it out, which is always an option. Hmm. I don't, like I said, I don't want anybody to uh, walk away from here feeling negatively about it. That's not the goal. No. I'm not trying to get some political points or something like that, you know? That's not what it's about. Well, I have now, well, I have one active podcast and one that i'm getting start i saw and, that yeah and uh it's the editing that just kills me i hate i hate it do you do it <laughs> yeah yeah it's brutal it is brutal yeah yeah <laughs> i even know what that looks like <laughs> <laughs> and the and um and um wow it was just it's it's tough i have i mean this i think this one is going to be 113 mm -hmm. and so not all of those have been interviews you know some of them are just me telling stories and other things like that right but it's very interesting to hear yourself talk and understand what you do and what other people do i listen to other podcasts and yeah i'll, I'll listen to like rogan and he'll have somebody on they could be the smartest scientist in the world and if they throw in um Every 10 seconds, you can't listen to it anymore. Know, it and they tough. don't even know that they're doing it. No, no, it is completely automatic. Yeah. It's just a part of speech patterns. And some of the other interesting things that, ha that happen uh, are, we'll get involved in a, in a conversation and we'll throw out a phrase that is completely nonsensical. Mm -hmm. But in the, in the moment, it makes sense to you and to me. Mm -hmm. Right, so that's fun. Yeah. Anyway. Well, yeah. And then if you get into editing too much, then it, it's not quite as cohesive. Sometimes you kind of, you might have to chop out a little something and you're like, well, wait a minute. Now it doesn't make yeah. any sense. Yeah. I'm, I started this one on creativity, uh, called, uh, creativity, hustlers, fakers, and thieves. And I've, and I like the idea. I've, I've got about four interviews down, but yeah, it could, I want to keep, I want to keep them under 25 minutes. Yeah, I so get that. that's where it gets. You know, you got to you got to go in there and be brutal sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I, I I have no problem doing that to myself. I it's not me that I'm promoting. I want I want to talk about ideas. So uh, yeah, I mean, in a way, it's it's like a work of art. It it's similar similar to 
when Scorsese puts together a four and a half hour movie and then they're like, you need to chop an hour out. He's like, what? <laughs> How am I going to do that? This is what it is. Well, so in the, in the Rick Beato series, uh, he's a big Steely Dan fan. And um, so am I. Uh, but he, he's he's talking with uh, Bernard Purdy. Hmm. Oh, you got a you got it. I got a few things to Google for sure. Bernard Purdy, drummer. Huh. Huh. Purdy's bounce. He's got some buttons and a thing that he does in the Steely Dan songs that are just killer. And you're just going, what, what? Well, you know what's cool about Steely Dan? I don't listen to them a lot for just like easy listening, like cruising in the car or whatever. But it is a staple for people to check sound systems. It's, oh, no. It's what a, a lot of very professional audio engineers year, use to check sound systems. Interesting. Because there's certain uh, nuance within the kick drum or the snare drum right. or the vocals or whatever. They listen to that and yeah. then they can tell, oh, this doesn't sound quite right. Yeah. Yeah. I... I uh Man, we, we better get started. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we may or may not use some of that. We'll see. Um, oh, have we been recording? We're recording. I got a whole bunch of pens I took from you. I'm really sorry. <laughs> no, kidding. We'll cut that part out of there. <laughs> uh, okay. So what I want to start with is you, you're obviously an artist. What you do is art. Yeah. That's how I view it. You? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you said that you graduated from Reed, mm -hmm. which is a very prestigious school. Okay. Within the Portland area. Mm -hmm. uh, I, call it, I call it a community college that I went to here in Portland. Okay. okay. <laughs> Just to get a rise out of some people. Uh, yeah. People take Reed pretty seriously. And sure, they should. Uh, but you said that you got a degree in literature. That's right. And then you went from that to woodworking? How does that work? It's obvious. <laughs> I was burned. I was really burned um, by the, well, years of schooling and expectations. So uh, uh, for myself, I, I, I knew, I knew later. I didn't know at the time when I, when I, I should have gone on and gotten a PhD. And then I would have been teaching. Well, the problem is, how are you supposed to make a life decision when you're 18 years old? That is the hardest thing in the world. Yeah. I was thinking about this earlier. Like, and you make a choice. So I'm almost 50 years as a woodworker. And I got lucky. I got lucky, man. I, I was uh, at a career day up in North Portland. A friend of mine was teaching up there. Uh, and... Uh, and one of the boys came up to me, first graders. They said, so what happens when you lose your job? I was like, uh, I don't. I work for myself. <laughs> I don't lose my job. But that can happen. But clearly someone in his family had, right? It was clear that his dad or mom had, had lost their job. So um, I, I wanted to do something that was not um, not normal, not what was expected, and, and not a real job. I didn't think it was a real job. That was quite foolish, but uh, I made a good choice and, and taught myself how to work with my hands, and that was big. But you must have had some sort of experience before that, high school shop, anything like that? Sixth grade. Sixth grade. Sixth grade shop. That's it. 
didn't know they taught shop in sixth grade. Well, where, well, where I lived, I lived, grew up outside of Chicago, and um, yeah, we had we had shop class in sixth grade, and I think that was it. I don't think we had in seventh and eighth grade. They were just trying to keep us chained to the lockers. Well, I, I was thinking about this in preparation for you coming down here to talk with me. It uh, It's weird, and I, it sounds bad when I say it that way. It is interesting that they teach woodworking in school. There's not many electives that are... I mean, it's consistently been taught for a long time in school. When I went to high school, you you had photography, wood shop, or metal shop. Mm-hmm. I mean, of all the arts and crafts, and I mean, I guess we had we had an art class where you could throw pots. But it's cool that that continues to be an item that they offer in school. Well, not enough places offer it. Um, I mean, it's still a it's still a fight to get shops and schools. Um, one of my students in the in my mastery program about five six years ago, um, Jamie was teaching at Grant High School, and he was a social studies teacher there, taught history and whatever they needed. And they started taking my program, and this light bulb went off, and he said, "I." think we should do this at Grand High School. And, and they put in a, a maker's space. So it, it's not quite a wood shop. It's a little bit different than that. I believe that it is a uh, essential for everyone in school to be doing something with their hands. Mm-hmm. And and maybe it's it's sewing or maybe it's metalwork or maybe it's, you know, whatever, woodworking. But that kind of connection, hand and brain, I think is really important. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's similar to music. Mm-hmm. It's um, you're right. It's the connection that you're making, and the even if you're not good at something, even if you try really hard and it just kind of sucks, the 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 act of creating and making something that you are fully responsible for mm-hmm. is so rewarding, mm-hmm. and. It's so important. E- even, I mean, I remember taking a home ec class and that, I mean, she didn't really teach us much. It was really just kind of like we we're hanging out, but we would make hash browns all the time. <laughs> and I made the worst hash browns, yeah, but, but like I got better at it. <laughs> and by the end of that quarter, I, was, I could make okay hash browns. <laughs> so that, that the value you get when you start with nothing and then you make something, it's so important. So uh, there's this wonderful movie called uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. I have heard of it. I have not watched it yet. And one of his apprentices, not his son, I don't think, but one of his apprentices is trying to make this egg dish. And and he tries it. And it's, I I think it's a baked dish. But he tries and fails and tries 50 or 60 times. And this is a professional chef. This is a guy who's who's really good with a knife and knows how to put things together. And it's never quite good enough. And uh, he finally gets it. And he said, "I almost cried when he, when Jiro said that's it." <laughs> There's something about uh, any let's call it manual labor, music, <laughs> cooking, manual labor has this has this terrible connotation you know oh well you, you know you're just you work in a ditch 
okay, <laughs> but you get to see the efforts of your day there in a pile beside you or in the, in the, in the kitchen uh, or making music. You can hear it. Um, there's something about that connection that um, to both the process and the product that is is lacking in a lot of people's lives and um and i get students from all walks of life who are like i really need to do this stuff i'm gonna suck at it and i don't care yeah, yeah. It, it's good to suck at stuff it's okay yeah i had a, a nonprofit for a period of time uh when i had the studio here in southeast portland and we were teaching high school kids and um they would make stuff it was Sometimes just horrible. And they'd be so proud. <laughs> They're like, look at what I did. I said, man, that sucks. Like, yeah, but I did it. Yeah. They're like, okay, yeah. I'm with you on that. Now, next time, think about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, did you ever watch The Simpsons? Yeah. It's like when Homer makes the spice rack. What a piece of garbage. <laughs> but he made it, you know? <laughs> There's something about that ownership. Yeah. Uh, I consider every piece I've ever made mine. Even if you've bought it, it's mine. Uh -huh. I, I put everything into it. Yeah. So it's, a, it's real. Yeah, there's different theories where you infuse, I don't know if it's your soul or your energy or whatever, but you infuse a part of you into that. And you can't take that away from somebody. Like, I think about this table, and I have had conversations with probably 80 people at this table. Mm -hmm. I feel like this table has energy. And this is just a shitty $500 Ikea table. Right. I really like it. Yeah. But like, it has energy in it, I feel mm -hmm. like, with all these conversations I've had. It's yeah. kind of cool. It's interesting when, when people start building furniture and they build a table and, you know, they're just like trying to make it perfect. And and I'm with them. Make it as as smooth or as shiny or as dull, whatever whatever you're after, as you like. But what happens to it after that time is life. <laughs> and so the nicks, the cuts, the scrapes, the stains, it's life. And uh, yeah. Yeah, it's like the table that you eat dinner at with your parents or your kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's fights and there's arguments and there's happiness and expectations and letdown and spilled milk and yeah. I, it's not a living thing, but it imbues or it takes in the life of what's happening around it. I can't go too far with that um, because then I'd, I'd be frozen at the bench trying to build stuff. Oh, this is. Well, no, I'm saying you start, you put it out there and then you have no control over what happens to it. Oh, absolutely not. Something you've created could end up in the Oval Office and then in a thousand years they're like yeah this was the table that they ordered world war three from or you know what i mean like you have no control over that no. you put out what you do and then it's it's out there but it still has you in the item yes it's a um well it's a commitment and it there's really no no point in doing this work if you haven't made that kind of commitment, I think. It's like, why, why not just go to Ikea? Why not just buy stuff that's going to fall apart? Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's a, that's a tough way to live, um, both f- for me and, hey, for the planet. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah, it's a bit more expensive to purchase. Oh, God. <laughs> a one-of-a-kind element, but no yeah, if, if you can, it allows you to appreciate things more. If you, and that's why I think it's important to have to to work for things and to have to get a job at a subway and make whatever, you know, $15 an hour, whatever it is now. Uh, you got to have a job, go through that struggle, get some money, and then you go out and you get whatever that thing is that you want someday. And then it has value and you, it's kind of materialistic in a way, but like, you also appreciate what it took to acquire whatever it is, and then maybe you'll take better care of it. Maybe. I, I think the, the important thing is the experience. So the experience of having built something teaches you for the next time. In fact, I tell my students, really what you should do is build the first one and throw that away and build it again, because <laughs> now you know exactly what you should do right mm-hmm. and what to avoid. But few of us can do that. They, <clears throat> we were discussing earlier the idea of making a choice in life at the age of 18. It's really tough. But, you know, there are some jobs you're going to look at and you're going to say, that would be cool for a while, you know? Yeah, I'll go work at this restaurant. <laughs> and, uh, and then I had another job where I, I traveled out to a remote remote concrete plant in this flatlands of Colorado. And I went, this is not a good choice for me. I don't want to be working here. And I left. That was a good choice. You know, and there's some, you know, you can, you got to check in with your gut. Mm -hmm. And that's, that is such a tough thing to learn, to trust yourself. And I think it's, and I think it works on the level of good design and, and good choices in life. You gotta trust yourself. What's that first initial feeling? You and I met and I went, oh, I like this guy. It wasn't like, eh, okay, I'll be nice. <laughs> I'll be nice to him because, you know, <laughs> we're gonna do this thing. Um, but you know immediately whether you like someone or don't like someone or it looks good on you or it doesn't look good on you, it tastes good, it doesn't, you know immediately. And the question is, should I continue to date her? No, (laughs) no, your gut's telling you no, or yes, Uh, you know, but understanding that, here we go, it's called pre-intellectual awareness. And um, there's this great book, um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And um, in it, he talks about Several things. Uh, it's a book uh, Robert Persig wrote. It was out in the 70s. And I read it then as a kid, and then I reread it 10 years ago. It's a completely different book um, <laughs> between those decades. Um, but he talks about understanding um, if something is good, if something has quality. And that understanding is before you put a name on it, before you say, oh, yeah, it's a post-impressionist interpretation of blah, 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 you know, labels. 
Is it good? Does it feel good? Does it affect you? Does it not? And understanding that is, that's been my goal since I reread Persig and, and wrote my book Handmade. That's been my goal is trying to understand that and trying to teach that to my students. What is, what is it that, that hits you about this piece? Try and understand that. And um, I, I'm convinced that on a design level, when you walk into a room, you immediately feel something from the room, right? You walk into a Motel 6, you feel one thing. <laughs> you walk into a Hilton, you feel something else. Mm -hmm. you, walk, you used to walk into the Heathman and you felt something really great. Mm -hmm. Not so much, no. <laughs> uh, that's just me. <laughs> I'm not a modernist. But they would have these Biedermeier pieces there, these giant 19th century German pieces, mid-century German pieces, browns and blacks and big geometric shapes, great pieces, just sort of sitting there. And uh, you get a feeling from a piece of furniture. And I think on the, that pre-intellectual level, it's a sense of proportion. Oh, this looks good. Or this sounds good. Oh, listen to that. That sounds good. That smells good. All those things uh, filter down to our intellect where we start tearing it all up and coming up with reasons for this and that. But I think before all that happens, understanding, boom, what happened? How's it feel? Is really important. Art is very subjective. Oh, yeah. And sometimes you are told to like something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I know what you mean. I used to work at the Portland Art Museum, and I'm not huge on art, on, on physical paintings and, and sculpture and stuff like that. But sometimes I just walk around and look at things and try to figure out why someone thought it was good. Right. Like Rothko comes to mind. Like Rothko is, is big in Portland because I think he lived here for a little while and the art museum kind of uh, favored him for a number of reasons. But sometimes you just look at it and it just looks like a blob of paint. And maybe that means something to someone, but I... I don't know. Sometimes I wouldn't understand. I wouldn't get why something was good. And it makes me think of Van Gogh, too, who was broke his entire life. Couldn't sell a painting to anybody but his brother. Dude was, was in the deepest, dark depression for all 37 years. Then chops his ear off, uh, potentially shot himself or got shot by a kid or whatever happened. But like now his paintings are some of the most famous in the world. Mm -hmm. Like why were they not important then? And with what you do and with people who create these, these items, um, they're functional. You, you make a dresser or some sort of um, a cabinet. Like it becomes a feature in a living room that is functional and you put stuff in it. And so I think that's different than just creating art. And oh, they completely, you know, they, they both have their own merits, but what you do is different. It's completely different. And <clears throat> by the standards, um, judged by the, uh, <laughs> intellectuals, by the PhDs of lesser merit. And that's how it is. So when you go into any art museum, um, it, it is, you know, it's painting and sculpture and, and, uh, there's not a lot of furniture, is there? Oh, no, no, no. Even going to the Met in New York and it's there. A lot of it's behind glass 
And there are a couple of rooms of furniture, but the decorative arts are not the same as the fine arts. And that's because I think, well, there's, I think there are probably a couple of reasons, but one is at least furniture doesn't last as long as pottery. So ceramics has more value uh, from a collector's antiques, antiquity point of view, um, stone. So there's that, but there's also the, the fact that there's purpose associated with it. But, you know, we live in a time now where there's so much good and bad design, right? Um, you know, old, old Steve, Steve Jobs and, and Apple put that way up on the list. And, and most of the time you talk to these, I had a student one time who worked for HP and I said, all right, so I got this HP printer. What's the most important thing you think about when you're designing an HP printer? And I thought to myself, print quality. Mm -hmm. It won't be longevity now. Um, you know, um, I don't know, interface with the computer. No, cost, boom, that was it. It didn't take two seconds for him to say cost. That's the most important thing. And mm -hmm. so there's a real difference there in, in thinking about the product. And yes, there's a difference between putting your heart and soul into a piece and making sure it fits under a $100 price, yeah. price line. But Louis XIV had a dresser that he put his garments in, that he put his silk shirts in. And that's got to be in a museum somewhere. It seems oh, like sure. there's got to be. But when you said it that way, I was like, no, I guess I don't see a lot of furniture. No. Wood, fine wood Well, you have to, under you have to understand this. Excuse me. Uh, the, the world of furniture that is collectible as, as works of art or as works of a period, and it's not just... Uh, the decorative arts. It's art in general. We're commissioned. Without rich people, no chateaus. No amazing chateaus in, in France. Mm -hmm. None of that Louis XIV furniture exists without Louis XIV going, build me this. You know, you want, you know, how, how many sous or whatever, uh, francs. Um, it, it didn't matter to them. But without... Uh, patrons, art doesn't exist, mm -hmm. or it does, but only on a cave wall in, in, in you know, so, somewhere in France. Well, yeah. So for the longest time, maybe up until like the thirties, forties, fifties, I mean, people probably just built their own stuff with pine, and it was no, they built it with whatever was on their farm, which yeah. is what you mentioned before about you know woodworking. And it's sort of odd that we're having it as a class. 125 years ago, 90% of the population lived in an agrarian situation. They lived on a farm. You had to be a woodworker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you had to be of some, you know, level just to, you know, fix stuff around the, around the farm. And you used whatever was there. So the first farmer who put his stalls up out of walnut and watched the horses piss on him, went, well, that's an interesting color his turn. <laughs> I mean, stuff happens because you use our oak, uh, white oak, if he used oak, and there's all that ammonia. There's, that's called fuming. 
It's an actual finish that we use now. They use horse urine for a finish? They use the ammonia. And we use actual ammonia. But what, what does that require? What, what do you have to do with the horse pee? No, no, no. We don't use horse pee. <laughs> okay. You're blowing my mind there. I'm like, what? <laughs> well, see, what we do is we get the horses. We got to line them up because they get a little, you know, everyone's got to pee. And so, and you're sitting there. No. <laughs> Not horse urine. The idea is ammonia turns white oak dark brown. Okay. And so, yeah, some farms had pine. If you were if you were a farmer out in out in the Dalles, yeah, that's what you had. You had ponderosa pine, and that's about it. Maybe mm -hmm. some juniper. That's it. That's all you had. If you were a farmer over here, you had fir, but you also had a black walnut or two. If you know you brought some seeds with you, or there, you know, there's local local hard ones. But um, you learned stuff. It's, it's one thing I'm always telling my students. I just rediscover stuff. This is stuff that's been known for centuries. I'm just, I wanted to, oh, I did, I, I did this joint. I wrote a big book on, on joinery some years ago. Lots of joints. And I didn't include this one because I didn't know it really existed. And I'm putting together this structure and it's part timber frame, which is joints with big timbers, six by six timbers. And, um, and I need to do a splice because I need a 24 foot run of 25 foot run of beam. Well, they don't make beams that big and too hard to work with. So I came up with this joint that splices together and then a tenon goes through it. And when the tenon goes through it, it can't sag. I was like, that's cool. And I came up with that. But I, you know, it's been invented. You know, someone, someone thought of that. You would think so. Oh yeah, of course. So I'm just rediscovering stuff. The stuff about fuming, rediscovering. I mean, there's all that stuff. Yeah, I was listening to something recently where they were talking about these uh, 100, 150-year-old houses in, I believe it was Japan, and the carpenters didn't use any screws. Screws probably didn't exist. They didn't use any nails or anything. All the beams were put together by various joints. Mm -hmm. Is that the right word? Joints? Joints? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so you could take the house apart. Yeah. And go set it up. So it's like a like a Lego set. There's a, a temple in uh, Japan called the Temple at Ise, I-S-E. And every 20 years, they disassemble it and rebuild it. Every 20 years. Is it? It's so cool. The idea of it is so cool. And, and basically the idea, you know, based in Buddhism, you know, it transients, nothing stays the same. Everything changes. They don't take the same parts they get new timbers every 20 years uh, but they rebuild the exact same temple next to the one there hmm. dismantle and turn into furniture or whatever hmm. very That's interesting cool. but yeah it's all it's all knocked down it's all pegged huh. yeah it's such an important skill because like you said hmm. up until recently everyone had to know how to do it it's kind of like being a cobbler uh, or learning how to grow food. Like yeah. everybody just had to know how to do it or you were going to die. Yeah. Or not have shoes or, you know, walk around barefoot. Yeah. Um, there's, there's only so many things that AI is going to be able to do. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, there are people under, some people understand that they can get a trade. They'll always have that trade. They will always make money at that trade. They're not going to get rich uh, unless they, you know, 
invest, but uh, yeah, it's it's a good way to live, I think. Yeah, <clears throat> working yeah. with you, working with your hands. It's a terrible way to make a living. It's a good way to live, <laughs> but you're happy, or at least you seem to be. I. <laughs> Happiness is elusive, but is. Uh, for everyone uh, these days. But you 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 get satisfaction absolutely. from your career, absolutely. which is important. I yeah, absolutely get that. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we we went on a lot of detours, which is totally cool. That's the point. But uh, you took woodshop in sixth grade. Yeah. Didn't do anything else. Went to Reed College. Got a degree mm -hmm. uh, in literature. Mm -hmm. And then, how long after you graduated were you like, "This is not what I'm doing." Well, um, it's important in, in my book, Handmade, I tell the story, uh, to know that while I was there, you know, I had some friends who were lit majors and, um, yeah, gets tiresome to talk with them. Uh, but I had a lot of friends who were physics majors. I was like, well, this is completely different way of thinking about stuff because we get loaded and, you know, we're out on, on Larch Mountain. And these guys, seriously, we're on Larch, Larch Mountain. There's a full moon rising. You know, we got some beers and some weed. And um, these guys get into a serious discussion about, well, how cold would it have to be if you took a leak for it to freeze before it hit the ground? And they were going into this big time. <laughs> I'm sitting there going... You guys are fucking nuts. <laughs> but it was it was not just hilarious, it was it was so interesting to see the way they looked at the world. Yeah. It was completely different than than a literature major who was always, you know, involved with themes or plots or, you know, character development. And it's, yes. And I love writing and I've gone back to it in a big way. But um what you got at the academic level was oh, bled dry, really just, it was lifeless stuff. Well, yeah, what's a career path for a literature major? You just become a English teacher? Well, it's the same career path for, for someone who goes to art school, unfortunately. You become a teacher yeah. and teach them the same things. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I would have gotten a PhD and then had to have lived through deconstructionism, which would have just killed me. So, What is deconstructionism? Well, the, I, <laughs> I, I couldn't describe it. How's that? <laughs> okay. I couldn't describe how we break, can break everything down into its constituent parts and then give it no meaning. So, okay. So, uh, okay. So, you graduated. How, how many years did you spend considering options before you decided that woodworking was where it was at? Two years. Two years? Yeah. So, uh, so my friend Joel, the astronomer, was a, was a motorhead. So, gearhead uh, motorcycles and stuff and so i i said oh, okay yeah, I'll, you know i'll wrench some on some stuff and my friend uh wheaton was also into motorcycles and uh not me but um but i knew a little bit and i, I went east i ended up in ann arbor michigan for a winter uh, a friend of mine was in a r&b band there radio king and his something I remember the name and I, you know, I was a roadie for them and uh but i was a volkswagen mechanic during the week i didn't know crap about, about it but i talked my way into a job i got a hundred dollars a week and uh you know spent a winter there and realized 
I don't want to spend a winter again in the Midwest. <laughs> and uh, I want to get back out, out west. So I came back to Portland and got a job pouring concrete. And my my boss, Harvey, great guy, uh, was building furniture. And I thought, hmm, Harvey can build furniture. Maybe I, maybe I should try this. Just to give, you know, see what it's like. Because I liked working with my hands. I like had a lot of energy. I like working with my body. So, um, yeah, I uh, took on some carpentry jobs, rough carpentry jobs, and uh, and decided then to teach myself. Okay. Yeah, carpentry seems more. Um, uh, like you're following directions, like you're, you're more worried about math and it seems like woodworking in, in the terms of what you do is more creative. Exactly wrong. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm glad we're having this conversation. <laughs> now, uh, yes and no. Um, carpentry is about speed. Okay. Um, and those days they were still swinging hammers, but uh, then, you know, nail guns. Less about math. Uh, there's a lot more math in furniture making. Huh. It's fascinating. Okay. And it's really fascinating. I love it. Um, but it's, um, yeah, there's there's stuff you I don't have anything here I could. No, no, no. <laughs> I, need, I need a bunch of pencils. Anyway, there's angles and stuff. It's just fascinating. Geometry is fascinating. Huh. And... There's a lot that there's a lot of problem solving that goes on in furniture making, and that's one of the real hooks. There's one of the real hooks. Uh, I had a student one time. Uh, he was a beginning student, and he and he came over to me and he said, "You know, he was a professor, head of surgery at OHSU, Jamie." And Jamie came over and he said, "You know, I never knew how much woodworking was like surgery." And I said, me neither. <laughs> but he said, you know, you run into a problem. You've got to figure a way out. Yeah, the clock's not ticking on my patient. The yeah. clock is ticking on his. Um, but you know, also know that you're not going to do that next time. You're going to figure out a better, you know, a better approach so you don't get into this spot. Um, you're working with your hands. You're, you're problem solving. And that's a big part of it. That's a real that's a real hook for me and for a lot of folks. Uh, there'll be a, a, a situation and and uh, and I'll say, okay, I'm not going to look this up. I want to just figure it out, come up with my own solution. And that's fun. I think it's just fun. Um, but furniture makers are, they love tools. They love to get their hands on tools. And they love to get their hands on wood. Um and they love problem solving, love wearing a lot of hats. And, um, and they have one other need, and that is to talk to themselves because it's one conversation they can count on <laughs> during the day. Yeah. It, it, do you spend a lot of time alone, just kind of deep in your thoughts? Yeah. 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 So it's, yeah, it's, it's solitary work. It's not, it's so different than pottery. Potters are, are gregarious. You know, they get together, they load a kiln, they, they sit up for two or three nights drinking wine and <laughs> making sure the fire's still lit and, and uh, big onagama kilns. Um, 
they're different than woodworkers. Woodworkers are very solitary. They need to be by themselves. Uh, they need to be working on this stuff. And uh, so, yeah, they're, they're different, different sorts. Okay. So once you started and you uh, decided that's the direction you were going to go, did you acquire books and talk to people or did you just kind of jump into it? I kind of just jumped into it. Um, I got some books, British books for the most part. Um, Why British? Because there weren't any American books. There really weren't at that time. It was 1974. Huh. No, there's very very little. And now it's just... It's just a, Did you go to read with Steve Jobs? No. He came in after me. Okay. He came in after I was gone. Yeah, I think he was there in 74, 75. Yeah, I'd have to look it up. I'm not sure. Yeah. It was brief. It was only yeah. three or six months or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. But, yeah, he did, you know, spend some time with, with Lloyd Reynolds, and I missed out on that experience, which was too bad. I didn't know about Lloyd Reynolds. You, you would see around campus lots of calligraphy. So there was lots of beautiful writing, which was nice. It was always nice to see, you know, instead of just um, sans serif, there were these, you know, flourishes and things. Uh, but that's where he, he really picked up his love of fonts, mm -hmm. uh, was from Lloyd Reynolds doing calligraphy. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll tell you a story. I was went back for a reunion. You know, it's just right down the street here. I live here. So I went back for a reunion. They were giving a, a one-hour... Um, Calligraphy class. So you got your paper and you got the pen and you were drawing on a leather letter or something. And the um, the teacher walked by and he said to me, "You have a very firm grip," <laughs> which is not a compliment. <laughs> But I had to take it as one, you know, it's yeah. like, okay, <laughs> I'm trying to be a calligrapher. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But that was fun. That was fun. It's fun to try new stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, that's college. I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's such a waste on the youth <laughs> to go to college, I think. You should go out and work for a couple of years and then go to college with something, you know, in mind. Yeah. And you would attack it with vigor but mm -hmm. instead we go there you know try and get a degree in something and then end up uh you know in a job that you never could have thought of preparing for yeah we're gonna have to reevaluate the system i don't know what the answer is but they are they're teaching kids they're training kids to do jobs that aren't going to exist yeah there's that yeah there's that i mean it, it, if we don't start teaching manual labor again, uh, that uh, there's going to be a price to pay for that. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what Portland used to be in, in the transition from a, a, t a manufacturing town to an intellectual town has been for the worst, I think. Um, just because there used to be cool stuff all over town, cool places that don't exist now because of the pressure of real estate. Huh. You know, do you know Ollie Damon's? Huh. Ollie Damon's was on on uh, Southeast Grand Avenue, like two blocks, three blocks from Burnside. One story fishing store. Fishing store. That's all he sold was lures and gear, not fancy. This wasn't fancy. So I was just, you know, I went in there to buy lead weights one time because I needed it for a project. Um, you know, little shops like that. There used to be a jewelry supply place over just one block north of. 
of Powell. Um, I can't think of their name right now, but what did you need for jewelry supply? They got it. Well, I think that's Amazon's fault. You can't compete with looking at your phone for 20 minutes, finding the cheapest version of whatever and having it shipped to your house tomorrow. Yeah. It's a crazy business idea. And he kind of figured it out, which, yeah, I mean, it makes it difficult to just run a regular business with a brick and mortar in a town. Yeah. The question is, how far does it, does that impact go? So he's, Amazon started out as a bookseller and um, pissed off a lot of authors, certainly a lot of bookstores, but transitioned to carrying, you know, just about everything and... And, and, and the idea of writing books now is, again, under siege as AI decides, okay, well, yeah, I can read Shakespeare, assimilate all this information, and start producing stuff. I mean, there's already, you know, issues with students turning out essays produced by AI and, you know, handing them in. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, I mean, it's, a, it's an issue for universities. So, um, yeah, there's, I, I have a lot of computers. I have, you know, all my classes are online. I am fully immersed in that, in that world. And yet, in my shop, I cannot use a CNC. I'm not in production. So I just what's a CNC? Uh, computer numerically controlled router. So everything you use is hand controlled. Yeah, I flip a switch on a lot of stuff. You know, so I have power tools. I have machines. But you don't have any three D printers or anything like that. No, no, not for me. Yeah, I just there's uh, there's a loss. Yeah, there's something missing there. I, I feel different um, designing on a computer than I do drawing. It's just I don't feel the same way. Yeah. I, I had a friend who was a, a chair maker, and he, he said about um, designing on a computer, why would I design on a computer and it would take an hour when I could draw and it would take me two and I enjoy it so much? <laughs> <laughs> So, but I also think there's a connection between the hand and the and the and the brain when it comes to design. Um, and I don't know. I think it's important to maintain that uh, to keep that spark of creativity alive. I mean, for me, it's it's the reason I do the work is, is to be creative. I don't know that I succeed every day, but, you know, that's why I do this stuff. You know, shit, this, sometimes you just can't sell a thing and, or it's so expensive that <laughs> no one would buy it. But uh, the fact that, that I sat and figured it out and made it, and that's a, it's a, yeah, a sense of satisfaction, as you mentioned. So, yeah, well, as you were developing your skills and figuring out um, the necessary steps to do whatever you were going to do. How, how do you determine what you want to charge for something when oh. it's a work of art? Um, there are, there are several approaches to this and um, <laughs> one is to say, okay, what does it take me to, to keep the doors open every month 
that's what I need to charge. This, this is how much I need to make every week to keep the doors open. So I've got to figure out a way to, you know, streamline and economize and, um, in order to do that. I couldn't build like that. So I figured out, okay, it's going to take me so long to mill up the wood. And it's going to take me so long to put the wood together. And it's going to take me so long to, uh, or to cut the joints and then put the wood together and sand the wood and the finish. And there's like five sections plus the design work. And after a while, I got pretty good at estimating. But that takes 10 years of experience to, to get to where you're pretty good. And I, the only way to do it, I think, is make a product. So I used to make hand mirrors. And I used to make cutting boards. Make a product that you can make without going blind doing it. And you like doing it. And do it for a month. Pay all your bills. And then do the stuff you love. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So what's your production item? And, uh, and then, you know, from there, take on work that's going to challenge you. It's going to teach you stuff and, you know, make it intriguing, make it fun to go out to the shop. Because going out and doing the same thing every single day, uh, it's not for me. Can't do it. Well, yeah, I was wondering about that. Do you have production items or is it kind of just one off at this point? Well, I, I stopped building um, for <laughs> profit <laughs> some years ago. I had 25 years of building. Yeah. So, you know, there's four or five years of apprenticing to myself. And then uh, Jane and I moved to a bigger shop, 600 square feet. It was gigantic. <sighs> I had a basement shop not much bigger than this. Well, yeah, you were saying you went from 10,000 square feet? Well, to that was later. <laughs> okay. So my first shop was a basement shop, about this big, 125 square feet. It was tiny, tiny. But that's where I started. And, and it was hidden away, and no one, could, no one could see the evil beast. You could hear me upstairs, but uh, yeah, it was, that was tough. Those are tough years. Yeah. Uh, so then we moved and moved into it. There was a 600 square foot former diesel uh, truck garage. Stunk, but did a lot of work there and then moved from shop to shop. I don't know where we were going with this. Where were we going with this? We were going with... <laughs> You, as a business, mm. deciding to right. make one-offs or produce right. things in, in bulk. So when we were in the garage, when I was building in the garage shop, um, I was still teaching myself. Uh, came up, I had some good designs, and then I started uh, putting work in galleries. And so galleries became a really uh, important part of my world to try out some things. And, and then uh, you would just leave them in the gallery. So they, they doubled as storage. Um, so you didn't have them cluttering up the house. Uh, but it also allowed me to try out ideas. And, uh, you know, at that time, there were some really nice galleries here in town. Um, but the West Coast was always really tough. If I had done on this in Boston, life would have been completely different. But the West Coast... Uh, it's always been tough because people have their second home, you know, and they they want to fill it with furniture, but they want to go skiing. They're not interested in, yeah. in buying custom-made furniture. So it was always a, a tough go. Um, but I learned uh, that I could 
build this stuff. Um, and after a while, I developed a style. Uh, but then I could write about it. And I met a guy at uh, Fine Woodworking Magazine in the mid-90s. And uh, Vinny and I started working together. And just, so what are you working on? Well, I'm working on this. And I learned how to become a technical writer. Got to bring that literature degree in. It worked. <laughs> <laughs> it worked. And it worked well enough that they asked me to write a book. So I wrote one book and then another book. And that made a big difference. Um, and after 25 years, I was starting to wear out. My shoulder was starting to go. I was, you know, it, it's hard work. Anything that you do over and over and over again, yeah. it doesn't matter what it is, it starts to wear you out. So I thought, well, maybe I should, you know, I'd been doing some teaching around the country um, because of my small notoriety as an author. So I could get gigs at various spots. Um, and then I took a sabbatical of a month, which is unheard of. I never had taken a vacation, ever. There's no vacation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I got uh, some work study, and I went to a place in Vermont called the Vermont Studio Center, which was mainly for painters and writers. And, uh, and I sat there for a month thinking, you know, what do I want to do with my life? 47 to do now I'm, you know i'm not making it as a as a furniture maker i can't you know i mean i'm doing okay but mid 90s portland was hit hit, hit third gear well and they're probably i mean because the internet wasn't quite the internet yet there no. wasn't a market for you to sell in other regions oh, right oh god no well yeah. galleries huh. but you know i've got a list i looked some time ago i 25 or 30 different galleries huh. showing my work. But and I, I was mentoring one of my current students about, about dealing with galleries. And some wouldn't pay you. And some wouldn't get you the work back. Hey, we went out of business. If you want the piece, come and get it. I'm like, <laughs> um, wow. Didn't we have a little deal working here? And, you know, another gallery was like, yeah, we made a phone call for you. That's, you know, that's worth $1,800. I'm like, oh, well, that seems a little. <laughs> they were, so they got a cut of what you sold? Oh, yeah. Well, it's, in the world, as I understand it now, um, what galleries take is fine as long as they're selling your work. So it was it used to be 40%. Now it's 50%. Oh, my God. Well, think about the music business. What do those guys make on a record? Like publishers? No, no, not publishers. The artists. Oh, the artists. No, the artists don't make anything. They don't make squat. No. And they got to pay, you know, the writer and they got to pay the, you know, studio, you know, and the recording's done. And they got, you know, the record company makes all the money. Same thing with publishing. Well, how do galleries exist with the internet then? You could get anything from anybody anywhere. You don't well, need to be shown in a gallery. It, it's, it's dealing with people. And that's the thing I was so bad at as a furniture maker. And then I started my school and I, and I realized, oh, well, people aren't all that bad. <laughs> and I really enjoyed being around people. And I was able to promote and market the school so much better than marketing my own work. That's such a huge part of the deal, 
is is you know going buskers i don't care who they are it takes balls to sit out there and play a guitar on the subway mm -hmm. i don't care that it, you think everyone's ignoring you someone's listening to you mm -hmm. i heard this group great group in new york city jazz musicians and you know it's hard it's hard to say here i am what do you think oh it sucks <laughs> I knew I never said that. I love love seeing those guys and street performers. I love watching street performers, but it takes such guts. Yeah. And so you build something, you've put your heart and soul into it, and you say, "Would you buy this?" Yeah. Do you like it? Do you like? <laughs> do you like me? Yeah. In truth, but the gallery, if they were good, and there was a gallery here in town, I almost wore his T-shirt today. Uh, Brad Rogers, and. Um, Vox Gallery, it was called. And I could bring him weird stuff that I'd built. i say, hey, here's this piece with these giant aluminum wings on it. You sell it? And he said, yeah, bring it in. So he was great. And then he would get me, he would get me jobs. And if they got me, he got me a job, he would take some percentage. Usually it was, you know, 20%. But he would get me some big, big jobs. Nice. And uh, so that relationship was great. And that's what they have to create with their buying public. I had a neighbor one time who was a furniture maker of sorts, but he was, he was famous. So he made cartoon furniture. And he told me once that he was worried about his work and whether it was going to sell. And he had called the gallery and the gallery said, it doesn't matter whether you think it's good. It doesn't matter whether I think it's good. The only thing that matters is that the five or six people who support this Madison Avenue New York City Gallery think it's good. Yeah. Because that's who's going to buy the stuff. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's the same thing as, as the Rothko stuff. You know, read The Painted Word. Wonderful book. Um, can't think of his, the author's name right now, but The Painted Word, I'll think of it. Um, Bonfire of the Vanities. So got all his titles. I can't think of his name. But he's talking about how the galleries in the, curators were helping to set the market by saying, okay, that's good. That blob of paint is good. <laughs> that blob of paint isn't. And it, there's no telling. Um, well, and it seems like a lot of that, um, that circle is more consumed with what it will be worth down the road. There's some of that. Yeah, there's certainly some of that. I thought of faking my own death. Um, <laughs> It's a it's a sure way, man. There's a payday at the end of it. You just got to figure it out. I mean, <laughs> shit. What was uh, the who, who just got sued? Um, what's his face? The redhead singer, pop singer. Oh, Sheeran. Ed Sheeran. Yeah, yeah. And, For the Marvin Gaye song, he supposedly yeah. ripped off. Yeah, I haven't heard the side by side, but I wasn't. I wasn't music, close. Music is. You're stealing everything from everybody. Exactly. If you've ever heard Queen or Zeppelin, like you're gonna. Like yeah. Jimmy Page stole all the stuff for Zeppelin from black blues sure. musicians. Yeah. Yeah. We're all just stealing from everybody. And it wasn't even, I forget who the co-writer of the song was. It was his family. That guy had died. Mm -hmm. Like, come on. So yeah. anyway, there's <sighs> what is art and what is valuable art are two different, entirely different questions. And and what is valued. I had a, a friend of mine, uh, Janie, um, really smart gal, um, and 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 I've been writing, and I've been writing. Yeah, I wrote a play, and 
novel and stuff. So short stories have been have been published, and I was lamenting I can't you know I can't get anything published. And she said, "Don't worry about it. <laughs> Just keep writing. There's there's nothing to be gained from becoming famous." It could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. It's nice to get recognition, I imagine, to have people appreciate you. But also, can you can you imagine not being able to go to the grocery store? No, no. I, I've I like going to the grocery store. <laughs> yeah, it would be so weird to be famous. Oh, you mean in that regard? Oh, yeah, that would suck. Yeah, that would suck. Yeah, you. So you just need to get published and and have all these things happen, but nobody know what you look like. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> no, really, the 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 hard thing, the 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 really hard thing is um, for anyone is to do the work just for yourself. That's all you can really do because at the end of the day, when you're when you're ninety years old and you know the end is coming, you just look back on all the stuff you did. Nobody really gives a shit about any of it. It's most important to you. You're gonna look at all those things that you've ever done, and you're gonna be like, "Man, I remember the struggle I went through to get. I remember my dog died, and then my grandma was sick, and like I didn't have any money." And you're gonna be like, "That thing I made is incredible." Yeah, that's all you. That's all it is. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm lucky. I you know, I actually have stuff that survives, at least has survived 40 years now, but um and if it lasts 100 or, or a couple hundred, great. Yeah. I won't know. So yeah. Doesn't matter. Yeah. About that, but um that's the thing. And yet it feels really nice when someone says, "I love that piece." Yeah. Yeah. That recognition is I don't know. It just, it helps you keep going. Yeah. So, so do people come to you and ask you to create specific things or is it always, you just come up with anything and then it's oh, offered? When I was doing it, um, it was generally, they knew my style Yeah. and, uh, they had a piece in mind. Um, but I also learned that, uh, people would steal from you. Huh. Which is very unsettling. So I did a design, some architectural design work for uh, the entrance to a house, and I designed some columns and support pieces, and made these drawings and gave them to the client. And they said, "Oh, this is really great." And I gave them a price for what it was going to cost, and they said, "Oh, that's not so good." But they they kept the drawings, and they had someone else do them. Mm. So I learned a valuable lesson. <laughs> and at that point, I said, you know what? I'm a designer. So you're going to have to pay me for these designs. And if you choose not to use me as the builder, that's fine. Yeah. And so I would charge, you know, 300 bucks or something. In the end, by the time I finished, I was charging 500 bucks a design, which is nothing for the time involved. But it's something at least. And so um, sometimes I'd win a competition. So the state archives have 10 of my library tables. That was a big deal. Uh, I haven't seen them. <laughs> I have to go down and visit them. But- uh, They're in Salem? Salem. Yeah. Yeah. 10 tables and I designed uh, cabinets for the entryway and stuff. And Do you put your name in any way on your pieces? I initial it, I carve my initials. Okay. That's it. I don't date it. 
Just your initials. Do you do you do it in a, like a common spot, or is it always well hidden? Or it's always hidden. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I'm not showy. Yeah. That's pretty cool, though. You, yeah, it's fun. You just go to some random building and start looking around the table. Well, no, I would, not, I would. I would. <laughs> it would be under under the top. It would be under the top. But yeah, those that was a killer job. And I, you know, I got other jobs like that. The last big commission was for a church, and I did five or six pieces for them. Um, yeah, people have an idea. But I, what I like to do now is I come up with a design, I show them drawings. You like this? You like what I've done? You sign off. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And so there's no surprises. I don't like surprises. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I also wanted to ask you about materials because you must have used 20, 30 different types of wood. Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I'd have to. I'd have to count. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. Could be. But I mean, you you must have favorites based on malleability, or yeah, carving work, ability, workability. Well, carvability. I mean, if Honduras mahogany were, were available, I'd just build everything out of that. But, Honduras mahogany is where yeah, it's at, huh? Yeah, but it's been overcut and it's yeah gone. So now it's expensive. Yeah, you can get it, but it's super expensive. Yeah. You can get. Uh, mahogany-like equivalents like Kaya and uh, uh, Sapili. I like Sapili. Uh, why, why is the Honduras mahogany so so good? Um, it's it's red, <laughs> and then it turns deep red. It just and it's got this creamy texture. Doesn't have a lot of figure, uh, so it's not very showy. It's color. It's just almost pure color. So, I mean, you can get astonishing pieces, but it's just gorgeous to work. When I started in the 70s, you could go to any lumberyard in town and get Honduras mahogany. Why? Because the pattern makers, the guys who made the patterns for the castings for the ships that used to get built in this town, needed Honduras mahogany. That's what they use for patterns because it's so easy to shape, really consistent grain, stable and just this long list of stuff huh. so what, what, what's the worst the worst pine no i like pine Is pine good i yeah. go to home depot and get bird's eye pine okay you just have to look you have to know what you're looking for but yeah. there's it's it's glorious stuff i like pine um the worst uh kaya is high on my list because the grain one year grows like this and then the next year grows like that and so you cut it and it's there's just tear up just tear up. Red oak. Yeah. Um, but I love white oak and uh, walnuts. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I used to use more exotics, but I cured myself of that. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the rainforest had been hit pretty hard. But um, so, you know, detail stuff. Um, I use little little bits of stuff, but mostly I use local stuff. Mm-hmm. And so what's your favorite piece to create? Say, say somebody came to you with all the money in the world, you <laughs> could do whatever you wanted. They're like, I just need you to make this one last piece. Huh. Interesting question. Well, <clears> hmm. <throat> yeah. It's like a cigar box. <laughs> <laughs> no. Although I, there's a box I built way back when that I still really love, and um, yeah, 
I don't know. There's there's lots of pieces. Do, do you is so? I imagine your house is just decorated with everything uh, yours. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you don't have. There's no IKEA in there. There's no uh, other manufacturers. It's basically probably all your stuff, right? I went to IKEA once, and I said, "I am not buying anything at IKEA. I am going to walk through this, you know, maze. I've heard about this maze, and I am not. Well, that's so cheap. <laughs> <laughs> I bought a colander. Um, yeah, I don't have any furniture from IKEA." <laughs> No furniture from Ikea. Uh, yeah, well, not everything is. I, I, I have one piece from another furniture maker. Really nice chair. Um, but everything else I've built. Yeah. yeah. And that that's kind of nice. Yeah, it's humbling. You're just you're surrounded by your artwork and you're, you're eating breakfast in it and you're... I got a piece at home. I had it at the Portland Art Museum at a show. Nice. Can't sell it to save my life. <laughs> Come on down. Give me a call. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't people appreciate I, good stuff? I can get you a deal on this piece. I know the maker. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, uh, yeah, there are some pieces I look at and go, dang, boy, <laughs> you did good. Yeah. There's a piece out there that I wish I had. How's that? Um, but it was a giant, giant piece. And uh, the guy I built it for, was getting elderly and going into a home and he contacted me and said, would you buy it back? And I was like, I can't afford to buy it back, which is too bad. I should have. Uh, it was a big um, sideboard in mahogany. So did he have to sell it to somebody else? I don't know. I tried to track him down, but I couldn't yeah. figure out where he was. Yeah. I mean, I know he's in Kansas, but I don't know anything beyond that. So there, you know, there's lots of stuff. Uh, actually, what I want to I want to do more uh, large scale sculpture now because uh, I love shaping wood. Shaping wood is just great. It's just so much fun. So that's what I that's what I want to do. In terms of taking one solid piece and turning it into something, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. So you're more into whittling it down as opposed to building and adding different pieces to themselves. Well, we talked about my sixth grade. Uh, I I do. I don't have the piece, but I, it was sort of this Henry Moore um, sculptor. Um, yeah, they just, uh, I have some ideas. Mm -hmm. I have some ideas. And uh, it's fun to play around with stuff. It's really, it, here's the thing. When you get in into an idea and the flow happens, I call it flow. I mean, I know what you're talking about. Time goes away. Mm -hmm. You're challenged. You're trying to do better. You're like, wow, wow, what if I try this? What if I, what if I do this? That state, it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. It's gorgeous. <laughs> it's, it's like nothing else. And, and it, could, it could last for a couple hours. It's not every day that it happens, but that immersion into into your work is just it's the best it's the reason for doing this stuff yeah forget to eat yeah it's just like yeah everything goes away uh -huh. but that doesn't pay the bills usually uh, so I'm trying to figure out a way to to do that and I think it's possible I think you need to you know here's the thing about being an artist discipline you don't have discipline forget it you just got to get lucky then 
and you know, luck. Uh, you got to have that discipline because you don't know, you know, when that door is going to open. Um, are you just saying like some days you wake up and you're like, oh man, I don't want to go to the shop. No, I don't say that. But there are some days I go to the shop and I'm not getting anything done. Yeah. Yeah. And I really need to just, you know, there are some days you wake up and you go, man, I'm going to conquer the world today. And who knows why I got just as much sleep. I feel just as rested and I'm out there going bing, 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 and just getting nothing done on that project and then moving there and moving there and moving there. Yeah. So it, sometimes I just have to do this. Get this done. Set little goals for yourself yeah. in order to get those done. And that helps get you into a flow, a little bit of a flow. Um, but yeah, it's a great feeling at the end of the day to say, look, I got that done. Mm -hmm. I got that little thing cut. It doesn't mean anything to anyone else. But to me, it's a big deal because I know mm -hmm. what it took to get that done. And uh, so it's, yeah, it's, that sense of satisfaction is, is quite real. But the uh, I had I had that point I wanted to finish up on, but it was more involved with music. There's, I've been so interested in music lately, and I'm not a musician. I take that back. Sixth grade again. <laughs> that was a pivotal year. It was a big year for me. How does the man and the woman get? Um, I I played uh, cornet, and then they transitioned me to. Uh, Treble cleft baritone. That's how bad I was at cornet. Anyway, um, I, I'm, it's, it's a fascinating field, not just to listen to, but to understand how things get made, how people come up with song. Um, my friend, my friend Mark is like, well, you know, um, Building a piece of furniture. Is it building a piece of furniture? No, we were talking about writing. He says, writing a novel is just like writing a song. I said, there's no fucking way it's like writing a song. See, good songwriters can sit down and write a song, what, five minutes? I mean, it's happened. Depends. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's just receiving that thing exactly. that you can't explain. Exactly. Yeah. It just comes to you. Mm -hmm. um, so furniture making is not like that. Uh, ideas are like that. Mm -hmm. And how you translate those ideas is... is it's that that fun part, but music seems to me to be a that kind of connection with the uh, with the gods that uh, so many arts are missing. Yeah, yeah, I've been fascinated with that for a long time because you don't. Sometimes you'll do something, you'll create something, and you're like, "Where did that come from?" You don't right. even feel like you did it. Right. You're just like a vessel uh -huh. for something you can't right. explain. Right. And uh, I know a lot about the Beatles and a lot of what they did was the same way. They yeah. would just sit down together and whatever Lennon and McCartney had, the, the, everything would just flow through them. And they'd write top 40 hit songs back to back to back to back. You'd, you'd wait for one of their albums to come out and you go, well, what's this one going to be like? Yeah. And then they'd come out with Sgt. Peppers and you go, what? the hell yeah yeah <laughs> and yeah rubber soul i mean amazing stuff yeah any any artistic endeavor it, it's involving a lot of that you could go for you if you for example you go out to your shop every day 14 days in a row and just maybe just be going through the motions but then one day you go out there and something's just perfect 
and you create something that you didn't even know you had inside you. Yeah, I like I like trying that. But for us in the shop, it there is a certain uh, rhythm that has to get set up first. You got to kind of lay down some tracks, so to speak, um, before you can get to a spot where you go, all right. Cut loose. Let's mm -hmm. see. Let's see what happens. Um, it's a, it's a very uh, left brain field um, is furniture making. So there's there's a lot of. But of, also, I'm glad I just thought of this because I almost forgot it. How do you know when it's done? How do you have trouble stopping yourself? If I'm carving, yes. I looked at a carving I've got hanging on my kitchen wall. I went. Yeah, it's not done yet. It's been there for 15 years. Uh, it's not done. It's wrong. Uh, so it depends on, on what it is. Uh, if it's a piece of furniture, the design work has been done beforehand. So once you have it in the flesh, so to speak, there it is. And you're going to decide that it worked or didn't. But usually I try and make that as as little of a surprise as possible. Yeah. So I try and do models and um, full-scale models and scale models and uh, prototypes and stuff to, to get the idea fleshed out so I, then I can just go ahead and do it. Once, yeah, I, I know when it's done. Yeah. Yeah, I know when a piece of furniture is done at least. That's good. Because that, it's different. Because I'll do the same thing over and over again. Yeah. You know, there are certain designs I do over and over again, and I like doing them, and they're really popular. Um, it's a stool design that I do that I designed in 1978. It was like, man, I I knocked that one out of the park. And my huh. photographer at the time said, "Well, you should you should copyright this." And I said, "Well, you can't." Yeah, you can't. Yeah, I don't think you can. And and now I see them all over for 25 bucks, and they paint on the joints. I'm not joking; they paint on the joints. Wow. They're 50 bucks, I exaggerated. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, there's, there's that, that thing about um, um, flattery and imitation. And that's, that could be a tough one, uh, particularly in the, with, with this internet that we have now. Um, so... Yeah, because yeah, on one level, it's got to feel pretty cool that somebody thinks so highly of it that they're going to copy it. But then also, they're taking money from your bank account. I, I, I was in class one time, and a, a student came by and said, Have you, do you know this guy? He's in Montana. And I looked at the business card, and it was my piece. It's a very distinctive piece. It was in a, a book of furniture one time, so it had been out there. But he used my piece on his business card. And I had to write him and say, Whoa. you know, <laughs> this ain't cool. So you should stop. Yeah. I, I don't know if he did or not. But I, you know, I've also, the, the, I did a, a story on that stool. Um, and someone wrote me from Florida and they said, ah, oh, boy, this is really a great design. This is, thank you so much for writing this article. I'm making 10 a week. Nice. Yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> Where's my cut? <laughs> <laughs> so, it, yeah, it's uh, it's difficult stuff. Yeah. Because in this culture, and 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 now it's interesting as as I've aged uh, to see how much stuff repeats itself. Um, it, 
the arts are, you know, always a very tough way to make a living. And some people do well and, and, and some people just, you know, try and make a living, you know. Think of uh, Mel Brown, jazz drummer. Mm-hmm. And uh, my girlfriend lived down the street from him. Very modest little house. Uh, guy is famous mm-hmm. in jazz world, but, you know, he's not making it. Same with David Frischberg. David Frischberg lived in a slightly nicer house, but in the 60s and 70s, David Frischberg was in the jazz world, a big name yeah. as, as a composer and piano player. I still think it's better than trading stocks, making millions. <sighs> well, I I trade stocks and <laughs> make less than that. <laughs> um, it's it's better than being a banker. That how's that for a yeah? Ugh, that's what yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot to be said for for choosing that path that doesn't pay you well, but yeah. gives you that satisfaction. That yeah, I other. mean, really, really, at the end of the day, it's kind of different for every person. Some people they thrive off making money and having cool boats and sweet ass house. Uh, you can't take it with you. No, no. I, I some people have a vacation mentality. My sister does. Uh-huh. She worked hard. She got her pension. She was a school teacher. She worked hard. But she is on a cruise most every month. <laughs> and I just go, doesn't dessert get boring after a while? I mean, yeah, it's like, okay, yeah. another champagne cocktail. Okay. I don't get it. Yeah. I need to be working. I need, I need to be out there trying to create some cool stuff. Uh-huh. And when I do, it's just better than yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's fulfilling for yeah, sure. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a good spot. I appreciate you coming down here and talking with me. It was fun. Thanks. Fantastic. Thanks, Thanks for you. having me.